This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 2. This season, the focus is on listening to the voices of our Black friends, neighbors, and strangers in order that we might better learn from their experiences of what it's like being Black in America. This episode is all about the importance a father makes in the life of a child. Today's guest grew up on the streets of Wilmington, Delaware. I'm excited to introduce to you Rashad Coleman, a policeman from Maryland, author of the book Fatherless Son, and an activist who works tirelessly to help exonerate those who have been wrongfully accused of crimes. Author Rashad's autobiography about his father's imprisonment is eerily similar to one most of us might already be familiar with, from Brian Stevenson's book Just Mercy. It's heartbreaking unfair and cruel, but imagine being the child who had to live through it. This is Rashad's story. Arthur Rashad, I am so thankful that you chose to join me on Gramercy today. I'd like to start with the easy question. Who are three people, dead or alive, that you would love to have over for a dinner party? The first person, man, I would say is, um, of course, my mother, um, just because she's always the life of the party. And anytime we do something, she knows how to work the room. Um, she's an amazing person. She loves to listen to people as well as tell her story. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's always somebody that, that just brings light um, to everything that we do. Um, the second person is uh, my favorite football player, who was a guy named Jerry Rice. He was oh, a yeah. wide receiver for... Um, the wide receiver for the San Francisco 49ers mm-hmm. and my stepfather um, used to love him and he would always every time Jerry Rice would score a touchdown he would pick me up and throw me on the bed and that was some of the fondest moments I've ever I've ever had with him and oh, the last person I would invite over um, who's currently deceased is a friend of mine um, named Terrence who was uh, gunned down um, a couple years ago mm. um, but he was he was one of my best friends for a while I mean, we lost communications a little bit Mm-hmm. But um, I would like to have him over. And the biggest reason I want to have him over is just so he can see uh, where I'm at in life now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a time that he didn't get to share with me, just just uh, being, mm-hmm. you know, successful, um, quote yeah. unquote. And um, to just see that there's another life out there, that the way yeah. we grew up and the things that we were taught might not have been the right things. And it wasn't always our fault. You know, yeah. sometimes you're just a victim of the of the environment that you're growing up in. So mm-hmm. to have those three people, my mom, Jerry Rice, and Terrence there, I think, would be uh, would be the people that I would invite. All yeah. of these people that um, everybody thinks to invite, they have such deep personal meaning, and that makes I see that it makes you who you are. These people mm-hmm. have shaped you, and yeah. how beautiful it would be to watch you interact with them and just to see the conversation flow. That would be mm-hmm. so wonderful. Well, speaking of your um, you and your friend and what it was like growing up and being victims of your environment. I would love it if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what it was like growing up being you. Sure. So I was born in the year 1983 uh, to my, my mother and father. My mother's name is Linda and my father is Daniel. Um, 
just some significant some significant events that happened in our life when I was three years old. My father was um, on his way to work and he was stopped by a, a white police officer um, questioned about a robbery that had recently happened. Mm -hmm. um, a couple months later, he found himself in court. He was, lo he was locked up that night, um, locked up that day, he found himself in court and he was sentenced to two life sentences um, when I was three years old. Um, uh, oh, the no. sentences range from uh, the rape of a 78 year old woman, um, the assault of her also, and the kidnapping of a uh, 22 year old uh, white female uh, in Newark, Delaware. So before I knew it, um, my father was snatched from my life at the, at the age of three, oh, um, which man. forced me to grow up a, a fatherless, uh, fatherless son mm -hmm. for the, you know, for the next, uh, 28 years, you know, life, life was okay. My mother worked as hard as possible. Um, she tried, had to push the family forward, even if that meant my father wasn't going to be there. Mm -hmm. And because he wasn't there, you know, uh, the decisions that I made were based on some of the street things that we were taught. Um, one of which was when it came to sexuality. When it came to uh, when it when it comes to um, being with a female, I lost my virginity at the age of 12 years old. Oh my! Um, you know, at the time it just seemed so normal because some of my friends who were around my age they had already had sexual experience sexual experiences, mm. and I just felt that peer pressure of to go ahead and get it done. Mm -hmm. um, so in the seventh grade, I had that experience. Mm. Um, that same year, I actually got into an argument with a female on a school bus, mm -hmm. and um, that argument, I said some things I shouldn't have said. And she pulled out a box cutter and cut me in the forehead. And oh my I got, goodness. Yeah, I received 52 stitches um, that day um, from that event. And uh, it was turned out to be a pretty rough year, um, my, my seventh grade year in school. Did you but press again, charges? Was, no, my, my mother and her, my, my grandmother and her grandmother both were on the same choir at church. So they actually knew each other. Um, oh, so my, no. my, my mother and my grandmother, they weren't. They're, they're, forg they're forgiving people, mm -hmm. though they were upset. It was kind of just something we had to take on the chin at the time, wow. um, which I didn't want to, um, because mainly because the streets tell you not to let somebody get over on you. You know, you uh -huh. have to do something back, if not worse, uh -huh. to kind of to kind of to kind of get back at them. Um, that same year, I met a guy named George Walker, who became um, one of my first um, mentors, uh -huh. um, and he introduced me to the game of football. And one thing he did was taught us all discipline. And we didn't know what discipline was. We didn't understand standing in lines or listening or having a, a male scream at you because none of me or any of my me or me and my friends didn't have male mm -hmm. figures in our our homes. We only had our mothers. Mm -hmm. So I saw the way he would interact with everybody and the way he would um, really care about us um, as far as teaching us things and teaching us the game of football and harnessing that anger and that aggression that we all had mm -hmm. because we didn't have fathers in the house to put it on a football field and to use it in everyday life and a lot of those things that he taught me, I still use. Thank yeah. God for him, huh? Yeah, he was, Is, he was vital. He was vital. Oh yeah, it sounds life. like it. Does, do you think that that age period, 12 years old, at what point did you realize, or did you see the lack of a male figure in your life to kind of direct you? Did, was it always there? It sounded like, I mean, you have the utmost respect and love for your mom and grandma, but I know boys need men they need to see look up at men and see how they yeah. act and from what you're saying it didn't seem that you had that so were you seeking attention at 12 years old or were you like looking or only acting like you thought men are supposed to act exactly that's exactly i mean i couldn't put in better words than that i was just acting the way um, we thought we should act so the only people that we would see outside 
we're street guys, where you're drug dealers, where you're you guys getting into fights. So that's the we kind of dress we, we wanted to dress like them, and they had all the pretty girls and the nice cars. Mm-hmm. So that's because we were in that environment. That's all that we've seen in men at that time. You know, they went they went to jail, came back home, everybody threw them a party. So it was like, oh man, I can't wait! For, I can't wait till that happens to me. You know? Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of people will look from outside in at a city like Chicago where gun violence is just rampant, and you would say to yourself, well, how can people live like that? But they don't they don't know this because they're born there. That's all they know is living oh. in that particular environment. So it's yeah. hard, you know, it's a concept that some people, it's hard for some people to get around. I can totally see that. I know so many people say, you know, if, if there's no jobs there, just leave. If there's, if it's dangerous, just leave. But that's an option that people with money have. If you don't have exactly. money, you can't just up and leave. You have no yeah. opportunity because it's expensive to move. Exactly. And then where and do no you one's go? Gonna let you stay so, and no one's going to let you stay there for free. No. How many brothers and sisters did you have? In which order were you in the? I was the third out of uh, three. It was three boys my mother had. Okay. Uh, my brother, my brother closest to me is four years older, and another brother, uh, which is five years older. And my mother okay. actually wanted to stop having children because um, she had her children pretty young. Uh-huh. She had my brother when he when she was fifteen, and my other brother when she was sixteen. Wow. Um, so she felt like it, you know that was kind of enough. I'm young. I still want to go to college. Things uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. But my father convinced her to have one more. He wanted a girl, actually. And so she <laughs> said, okay, I'll have one more. This is it. And uh, they had planned a, a nice girl planned out. Yeah. No. It didn't happen. <laughs> didn't happen the way they planned it. But you were needed. grateful for it. You were needed. For some reason, yes. the world needs you. Right here, Definitely. right now, right? Definitely. So what were some of your, you described some of your greatest hardships um, when you were young. At least one of them. I'm sure you have many. Yeah. that you could recount um what were some of the memories you cherished the most from your family and your growing up years at a young age my mother told me that i would be in in lights one day she just i don't know why she would say it. she would just always say man i see your name in lights one day and i can remember as a uh, seventh grader when i went to play for coach george we were playing this game is my first time playing organized football the first game of the season and, uh, you know, we're going through, it's, it's like, uh, I think we're down six points. And I hadn't touched the ball yet because I'm the wide receiver. So I'm just out there and I'm doing my thing. And uh, at the end of the game, it was about, I think about two minutes left. And my coach caught a timeout and he came in the huddle and said, look, this is the time, this is our opportunity right here, fourth down. And uh, my nickname is Doodle. So he said, we're going to run a play. And I remember looking over at my, my mother in the stands. She was just sitting there by herself smiling. And he said, we're going to throw it to Doodles. And I looked up and I said, whoa, <laughs> you know, are you talking about me? He's like, can you catch it? I remember just being this little kid looking up at him with my big mouthpiece on my mouth saying, yes, sir. And we ran a play. Um, a, a friend who's, who's still my best friend to this day, he was the quarterback, threw me a pass. And I happened to I close my eyes. Luckily, the ball hit me right in the chest, ran in for a touchdown, scored it. And I uh, looked over at my mom and she was just couldn't be, you know, proud enough. And, um, wow. you know, that went to, to high school. I had, I was a first team All-State football player. And um, same thing. I can remember just looking up at my mom in the stands and her just being proud, scoring another touchdown. And uh, same thing with college. I happened, um, had another mentor in college, I mean, in high school, named Cordy Greenlee, who um, one day talked to me about going to college. And I uh, thought he was kind of a little over his head um, because knowing the place that I come from, people don't go to college. They grow Mm -hmm. up, become drug dealers. They get locked up. They have the big party that I was speaking for, speaking of. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of it. But he, he, he told me that I was better than that street corner. I could go somewhere else. 
I was smart enough to go somewhere else, do, do some do some more things in my life. Mm-hmm. And he eventually got me into college, uh, eventually got a scholarship. And again, wow. he come that touchdown again, you know, scoring that touchdown and seeing my mom um, in the uh-huh. stands with her hands raised and, and so proud of her baby boy. So those are just some of the fond That's memories beautiful. that I have. That's beautiful. It's amazing how football or sports in general, how that helps develop a positive ego, a positive sense of self, having somebody believe in you and trust you, like he's going to get the job done. We know he will. I mean, I can't imagine what that did for you to, uh, to just boost your ego and the knowledge of I can do anything when people around you, your environment is kind of saying the opposite. Mm-hmm. And it's like the streets, you know, the streets that we grew up on, I grew up in in Wilmington, Delaware, it was chaos. It was people arguing and fighting and selling drugs, and people getting shot, and, you know, the stick up boys and all these things going on around you. And football taught me just to, to kind of absorb everything and just take out what I needed and, and when, to, when to leave, when to get out of that environment. Mm. Um, you know, when something happens, react quick. And just kind of, you know, know what's going on around you at all times. And sometimes that meant just not not being out there with friends and a mm-hmm. shooting would happen. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm so grateful mm. you know, that I wasn't there. So it was definitely something that was vital in my life. I can see that. And I can't imagine the burden your mom carried with three boys having to be that voice of reason, that lone voice trying to say, stay away from all this negativity that you're surrounded yeah. by. I mean, you have to have other voices speaking into your life, don't you? Is that what the mentors and the coaches did for you? Exactly. They all, they all spoke into my life and, and not, they didn't always have the words. Sometimes it would just be, make sure you listen to your mom. You know, mm-hmm. she's trying to trying the best that she can. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're taking heed to her, all of her advice. And sometimes I felt like I was in the, um, when I was in the eighth grade, um, I didn't know why my father got arrested when I was, when I was young, my mother never explained it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came home one day and I talked to my mother about a new girlfriend that I had in school um, and the girl was white. So my mother, she, she worked in a, a pretty uh, rich neighborhood. She lived, we didn't live in a pretty rich neighborhood, but she mm-hmm. worked in a pretty rich neighborhood. And my mother asked where she lived at. And I told her where she lived at. And automatically she said, you know, is she white? And I said, yeah, she's white. And my mother started crying and uh, just saying, you know, sit down for a minute. Let me tell you about why your father is in jail. And she was saying that, and, and she explained to me why he was in jail, but she was more of saying, I don't want this to happen to you. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want you back in that position. Mm-hmm. I know what white people have done to this family, which is break us apart and essentially tell your dad he's never going to see the light of day again. And to force me to be a single mother with three kids in this mm-hmm. society. And I don't want that for you. Um, mm. And that was a tough conversation because I, you know, I wanted to always listen to my mom. I wanted my mom to always be my champion. And uh, when, she, when I, the first time I seen her cry because of some, something I was doing, it was a... Uh, tough burden on me as as an eighth grader. So um, when did your parents first discuss racism with you? Or was it just always a thing? It's just something you knew, just this is just the way it is? Or did they have a talk with you and say, hey, listen, this is what you're going to encounter? Or I guess you have a completely different point of view because of your dad and what went down when you were three. Yeah, we never, my mother never sat me down and spoke to me about race per se, but she did always um, emphasize the history, history of this country, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where your family comes from, as far as slavery goes, things of that Mm -hmm. sort. And, uh, but she, she, one thing she did teach me was to never be a victim of this environment, nor to be a victim of who you are. You know, you can, some terrible things have happened to our family, but I still need you to stay focused and be the best person that you can be in society. 
you know, you can you can be just as smart, you can be just as good as anyone else. You know, don't use this as a as a victim card. Understand the history. Don't use it as a victim card because you have to continue to live in this society. So I want you to still grow up, be a strong young man, take care of your family, do the things that you're supposed to do in society. And um, that's up doing that for, to to the best of my you know to the best of my ability. What strength of character she must have had to be able to speak those words of wisdom to you. I can't imagine what she suffered, yet she cho chose not to be a victim. Incredible. And I, think a lot of it, and I think a lot of it came also. I had a coach in, uh, in high school named Mike Ryan, um, who's, a, who's a, a white gentleman, mm -hmm. and he helped me so much. You know, one of my favorite teachers, Miss Murph, who was white, she was just vital. Um, I'm not very, I was never very strong at English, but I was very good at math. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because she cared about me. You know, mm -hmm. she didn't like, let me make any excuses. When I wanted to sit in the back of the classroom and talk to girls, she would move me to the front of the classroom. When the girls would move to the front of the classroom, she would move me to the <laughs> side of the classroom. Yeah. So she didn't, you know, she didn't give me any excuse on not to mm -hmm. succeed in her classroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, and my, my coach, Mike Ryan, I was speaking of, he's the one that took me out of classes when I was in the 10th grade, going into my 11th grade year. And we were thinking about college. He's the one that said, you have to get out of these low-level classes with your friends and go into some of these other classes and you can succeed. You know, we'll give you the help. We'll do whatever we need to do. But get in these classes. It'll work out. You get yourself to college. And I think when people uh, make decisions like that, I think I'm sure my mom seen that, saw that from the sideline that, you know, white people are, are, are willing to help my son be a better person. So, you know, it can go against maybe some of the things that she might have thought or she might not have thought. Mm -hmm. But I understand her, her cautiousness. Oh, for um, sure. When it comes to living in society after what yes. happened to her husband. Yeah. So you've had both positive and negative experiences with white people. So it's not just a, a dualistic point of view. They're not just bad or good. It's, sure. you know, it's a little ambiguous. It depends who you're with or who you're talking yeah. to or the, the, the situation, right? Exactly. Exactly. That, that's exactly the way it is. Because I've had bad experiences with black people. <laughs> I've had For bad sure. experiences with, with, with Hispanic people or Puerto Rican or uh -huh. El Salvadorian, whoever it is. But I've had some great experiences with everyone. So you try to judge people, um, uh, you know, by what Martin Luther King said, by their character, yes. by who they show you you are. Yes. Um, and my mother always has a quote that she had from uh, Maya Angelou. And she, she said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Mm. You know, once they show you exactly who they are, what they believe, believe that. Don't think, oh, no, they didn't really mean, no, believe exactly who they are. Oh, I love that. That is so great. I'm glad you passed on your mom's favorite quote. That means a lot to me. I'm going to go put that, add that to my list of quotes. <laughs> I have a running list and it gets longer every time I talk to somebody. <laughs> That's awesome. just beautiful. Awesome. Um, so do you mind me asking what it is you do for employment now? Um, is this something that you went to college for? Is this something you just kind of found yourself be doing? How did that work out? My, um, when I was, I went to college for communication. Um, I got out of college, graduated in four years, and uh, after a lot of partying, of course, and um, I became a teacher, um, which is where I met my wife at, and uh, my wife is, uh, we're in an interracial relationship, so she's white also, but I went to, I felt the need to get my, my mother and my father's approval um, mm. before I got married, and I had, you know, I dated, um, I'd been in several interracial relationships before I met my wife. Um, and so I went and talked to my mother and I said, well, mom, I want to go talk to my father also, which is a SBI number. If for anybody that doesn't know, SBI number is the State Bureau of Identification number that all inmates have. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I want to take my, you know, I want to take my girlfriend this year, or, you know, my girlfriend soon to be mm-hmm. Beyonce to see him and talk to him. And when I went there and talked to him, she was around a little older than the woman um, that uh, accused him uh, years ago of this crime. And I had so many questions when I went into that because I had never spoken with him about um, the crime that he was accused oh, of my. committing. Yeah. So it was just, I don't know why I felt like, I don't know why I felt I needed to get my father's approval because I didn't even know him. He went away yeah. when I was three. But it was just amazing. As soon as I got in there and we talked to each other, just us hugging each other and him, you know, telling me he loved me. It was, you know, first time a man had told me, I really love you. And, and I felt like it, it meant something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I talked to him about, you know, us getting married. And I had some reservations about her father and him, you know, accepting or giving me a, his blessing. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, go ahead. If you're, if you're in love, go ahead and get married. And for that, for that to come from a person serving two life sentences, Wow. It was amazing. It was just this joy came over me. So to get to your question, I felt like I needed to help him at that point. I said, I can't let this guy just sit here yeah. and rock. Yeah. And, uh, and I eventually I applied for the police academy. And um, I applied for two police academies. The first one I went to, um, they questioned me a lot about my father's case, which I had no clue about. I mean, he was arrested when I was three years old. Uh-huh. So I felt like that was a little biased. But the next, um, the next recruiter I had was a black recruiter. And I explained to her before I even went through the process of, look, this is my father. This is what he's arrested for. Mm-hmm. And she said, we're not worried about that. We're just worried about you as an individual. Yeah. And um, so I became a police officer in Philadelphia in 2014. And um, since then, me and my father, uh, you know, my, my, my father had went up for parole and he happened to get released. And he wanted me to start looking into his case. And, you know, I found out that uh, he was actually innocent. He was wrongfully convicted. Of a so glad to hear that. He that. Committed. Yeah. I mean, but I'm I glad wanted, to hear I'm, he's... I'm glad to hear he's yeah. innocent. I'm not glad to hear that he was wrongfully um, yeah. convicted. But exactly. um, I'm exactly. so glad you have the ability and resources yeah. to help him. It all, play, it all played out like a, like a story. I mean, I, when I was in the police academy listening, I'm listening to past tests, but I'm, I'm also listening with my father in the back of my mind and listening to his case and him explaining to me things that happened to him, um, wow. you know, in the interrogation room or or me reading the paperwork or looking at the court documents, all these things. Uh-huh. And I'm asking the professor questions. I'm asking questions as a student, but it's pertaining to my father's case. But I'm not saying necessarily uh-huh. my father. Yeah. But I'm just trying to get all this information out. And uh, yeah, I found out that there was DNA evidence. There was fingerprints evidence. There were witnesses that were never called um, that said my father wasn't there. So many things. It doesn't sound like neither you or your father hold any bitterness. No, I, I just don't think that's in our heart. I mean, we're not, you know, we're, we're still fighting for him to be exonerated because we have the evidence. So he's, we, we're still fighting for him to be totally cleared mm-hmm. of these crimes. But again, uh, you know, I told a friend of mine before that if something were, were to ever happen to us, I don't think a lot of people would care outside of our mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So we have to continue to live life. These are mm-hmm. things that African-Americans live with. He's not the first person to be to be uh, wrongfully convicted, you know. Thank mm-hmm. God he's still alive and he didn't die. Yeah, he was in prison for almost 28 years. But there were people, you know, such as Emmett Till, that weren't as fortunate as my father is um, mm-hmm. to be able to live and, and be able to tell his story. And us, for me and him, to be able to tell his story the way it should be told. And um, because when I read initially read the police documents um, without my father's explanation, I thought he was guilty. I'm saying, oh man, they have all this. My father yeah. did this. Uh, to go along with it, my friend's fathers, they were all incarcerated also. So I, I was just believing the hype that this, yeah. was, this was the case. My mother would always say, you know, your father's innocent. Your father is innocent. And we didn't know how we were going to figure this thing out. But luckily, me becoming a police officer 
really guided us in understanding what the true what truly happened on that night. That is incredible. When you were telling me about how you the first time you you were hugging your dad and he you, you see him how how did that feel to have that affirmation from your dad like to see the person who you look like who you have characteristics that are similar to just that sense mm -hmm. of connection you have to somebody yeah. that you you didn't get all growing up yeah it was amazing to to see him you know my, my wife i've seen pictures i saw pictures of him and my wife me and my wife were sitting in the waiting room and she said does he look like you and I'm, no he doesn't look like me i said but we have the same we have like these like elf looking ears and i said we have the same <laughs> kind of ears as each other i said if it wasn't for that i don't know if this guy was my dad but when we got together and now that i look at us with, with our pictures side by side we look just alike yeah and, um and it, it's always been a life of of just uncertainty because we lived in a rough neighborhood where people's houses would get broken into all the time and all we have is my mother here you know, mm. we don't we, we don't believe in guns, so we don't have those in the house. So it's just this this state of vulnerability that you don't know what's it's that anxiety of you don't know what's gonna happen tonight. You know, you don't know. So and growing up I would always, you know, lift weights and, and mm -hmm. do a little boxing because I knew I didn't have I, I couldn't say, Hey, I'm gonna go get my dad if I get into a fight. I knew it was just it was essentially just me. And um and to go back to, to some of what we talked about earlier, because it was just me and my friends on the street, we all relied on each other for situations where you wouldn't be able to handle something. So because you couldn't say, I'm gonna go get my dad and he's gonna come take care of the situation, now you gotta rely on your friends to to come and handle the situation or help you out in the situation. Mm -hmm. But then they say it's vice versa. When they call you to go get into a fight, some people will say, Well, don't do it. You know, you don't have to do it. Yeah, but what happened when it's your turn? And, yeah. you, and some guys are chasing you home and you need help. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's so many, it's such, such a, uh, a confusing situation mm -hmm. for kids that grow up in that inner mm -hmm. city, especially those kids that grow up without a father. How wonderful that you're in a line of work where you can make a positive impact in mm -hmm. those kids' lives. You, and plus you understand completely in, in a, a negative inner city or um, lower class environment um, what they're having to deal with because of lack of money lack of opportunity lack yeah. of a father um, yeah. yeah that's so, that's so true wow. I mean, one of the best I think one of the best moments I've had I've had a lot of good moments as a police officer one of the best moments I've had there was a guy that was um, um, overdosing on heroin heroin in um, the streets of Philadelphia just in the middle of a, a park where kids are playing at um, it's kind of a regular thing, unfortunately, there. Um, so we get there, I mean, my partner and I, and we hit him with uh, what's called Narcan, where you put the Narcan up their nose and it kind of wakes them up. Mm -hmm. Well, there was one young guy, I had gone into the inner city schools around my district and taught a math class inside a uniform. And I was just using that as a bridge to some of these kids to be able to talk to them. I um, and it would be their first time ever talking to a police officer. So this kid comes up, and I remember him from a school, and he comes up and he's looking at the guy and he's, he says, man, this effing guy is, is overdosing again. And uh, and I looked at him and I said, man, I know you have a broader vocabulary than that. And he said, yeah, I do. And I forget the word he used, but he used it. He redid re the sentence again and he used it without cursing. Uh -huh. And then he wrote away. And, I, and then my partner looked at me and he said, oh, that's why you go into those schools. And I said, that's what that kid needs. He needs somebody that's that just, beautiful. just tell I care about him. Yes. You know, I'm not going to chastise. I'm not going to tell him get out of here. Or yeah. Stop cussing. Let's figure this thing out, and let's figure out a different way that we can we can speak, especially around grown-ups. 
That's incredible that you have that ability to speak into these kids' lives and to show them you cared. Isn't that all any of us want? I mean, sometimes we believe the lie that we don't care, we don't matter, and this is why we're doing these self-destructive activities. But you are in such a beautiful position. I'm so thankful that that you have the job you do. And also I wanted to give kudos to your wife before you even got married and she's going to the uh, penitentiary with you to meet your father. You knew that was a forever thing right yeah. there. I mean, she's coming yeah. with you. She's, she's the one. <laughs> she, yeah, she's the one. She believes in you just as much exactly. as, as you believe in her, right? Exactly. And we, and we didn't know how he would react, you know, because I didn't know him as a, I didn't know him as a grown up. I had, um, went to see him a couple of times as a, as a young, young guy, but, I had never seen him upset because all of our all of our meetings were a maximum of twenty minutes, twenty five minutes. Mm. So I didn't know. You know, it was my first time speaking with him as a grown up, mm-hmm. and um, he was just man. He was just so so uh, so genuine and, and so honest, and and just cared about us and cared about us just being happy. And here he is serving a life sentence, and he just cares that his baby boy is happy. And it just yeah. meant a lot. And for my wife. To just when we were driving off, she said, "I don't, I don't feel like he belongs in there." And uh, I said, "Yeah, you're right. You know, maybe there's something that I can do." And that led me into a, a life of, of law enforcement. That's beautiful. Before you were in law enforcement, did you ever experience any racist acts against yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I had police officers, um, white police officers, would stop us all the time on a corner, just search us for no reason. Um, tell us, get out of here, you know, why don't you guys get a job, things of that sort. Um, when I was at college, we would have, a, we had a NASCAR, there was a NASCAR event that would go on across the street from our college. And we had a guy ride by and call us all the N-words and, and you know, things of that sort, which are unfortunate. But I've always tried to use that as, as a means for, um, as a means for, I don't want to say encouragement, but it's fuel to be better. You know, to be wow. better in life, not necessarily for that person, because that's his problem. But um, I want to show people that you can, hey, if somebody calls you that, you can keep it moving. You know, it should, it should, it should do nothing for you. So you it know, doesn't that's, that's create anger for you. No, no, because then, then, then I feel like that person won. That person mm. got over on me. You know, that person is able to, is able to um, control the way I feel, which I should only be the, I should be the one that controls the way I feel in any situation. I have to, I have that control. If someone says something to me, you know, it doesn't feel great, but, um, but my reaction is what I can control. Yes, we can control our reactions. Mm-hmm. And so many of us do not have that level of character. We, we would rather blame somebody else for our reactions and, and feel justified in it. When I think you would have complete justification for being upset with somebody calling you a derogatory name, it just shows how much your mom's words really resonated in your heart where you, where yeah. you knew that that person's not going to change how I act. I'm yeah. super impressed with that. That really, that's something I keep hearing over and over again. You choose your reaction. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's definitely needed in society. Because yes. so, so much of what is taught is just that they do something to you, you do something back. Exactly. You know, in, any, in any situation. And where, yes. and where does that, you know, essentially where does that end? Mm-hmm. We just keep saying, we just keep trying to hurt each other. We keep trying to hurt each other's, you know, each other's feelings. Sort of like why I got this scar on my head. Um, I had a, uh, a, I know we'll talk about this eventually, but I had a book launch and I brought on the person that cut me in the head 
and we you got did. to talk about yeah we had we got to talk about that situation and there were a lot of things that happened to her prior to our incident which is uh -huh. why she had a box cutter on her to protect herself so when i called her um a bitch yeah. right her first reaction was i need to take this thing to the maximum level so that's yeah. another learning experience is you don't know what that other person is going through exactly you know? Don't know exactly. what that other person has in their head so that's why you should control your reaction well and i'm sure at the time you never would have imagined however many years later that you guys would be together yeah. helping your book launch and yeah. that the look at what the forgiveness did for both of you how it yeah. created a better life for the two of you mm -hmm. and and it could have you know my reaction to that could have because in the streets it teaches you that you have to be worse so when somebody does this to you, mm -hmm. you do something even worse to that person. Mm -hmm. So if I would have done something worse to her, if something would have happened to her, I may not be here right with you right now with you speaking. And I might exactly. not have those three beautiful kids downstairs. I could be in a jail cell, uh -huh. you know, riding away somewhere. But instead, uh, because I chose to just, because at first off I had prayer, you know, with my mother and my grandmother mm -hmm. just praying for me and, and telling me to stay focused. Mm -hmm. But because my reaction wasn't that reaction that I was being taught from the streets, I'm able mm -hmm. to kind of live a good life now and it's awesome i'm glad i made the decision that i made oh isn't that the truth i'm i'm curious as to how do you plan to explain the system of our country to your children um when they i mean all these sweet beautiful innocent little children coming into the world and then they're slapped in the face with some of these harsh realities of racism and sexism and classism mm -hmm. and xenophobia and i mean there's too many of them to name yeah. that right. you could be a target or a victim of um mm -hmm. how do you plan to discuss this with your kids well man I, I have so many different things going on i'm not only not only am i an african-american but i'm a police officer right and, mm -hmm. and not only am i a police officer but i'm married to a white woman which makes my kids um biracial mm -hmm. so um we try to be as honest as we can with our kids and our children. We try to be, we talk to them about slavery, um, which is always a difficult kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. But my wife has done a good job um, because she doesn't understand the plight of an African-American. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say that, sometimes people have a, a problem with it. But I, when, I, when I say you'll never understand the shoes of an African-American, um, for example, when you're driving down the street, when a cop gets behind you, your heart drops mm -hmm. like there is no tomorrow. When those lights flicker on, you don't know if you're going to make it or not. And that is a feeling that you can only have if you have that trauma passed down through your DNA that mm -hmm. my father has, that my mm -hmm. mother has, and that my grandmother has. So to answer your question, we try to be as, just as honest as possible with our children about history um, of our country. Um, mm -hmm. And we also explain the greatness of our country also. Mm -hmm. But we do talk about the, 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 the not so good things that have happened in our mm -hmm. country and my, my wife she reads a lot of books and tries to understand um the issue the uh, you know the path that african-americans have had to take and um for them to understand also that both groups are going to be um sort of weary about you you know you're not going to be black enough for the black group and mm -hmm. you're not going to be white enough for the white group mm -hmm. um but you are an individual anyway so mm -hmm. you take things the way they are and um just the words from my mother when someone shows you who they are believe them you know be cautious yes. in this society but don't let that hinder you from being happy. Yes. Oh, that's the perfect wisdom to give them. Wow. Wow. I have every confidence that they're going to grow up to be exactly those people and <laughs> to not have that negatively affect them. And kudos to you and your wife for 
giving them the history at such a young age, like your mom gave you. I mean, all you have to do is study the stories to see yeah. what the truth is and, yeah. uh, and no revisionist history. No, like, well, let's put a new spin on this. No, I mean, we can't make it pretty. We really, exactly. and I think sadly, I think so many schools try to, we try to downplay things. We try to, to just gloss over things that need to be felt and seen mm-hmm. at a deeper level so that more people could feel that sorrow, could feel that compassion, could feel that, just that anger at the injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. That, which is why we try to, we try to explain it to them and we try to do it in a healthy, um, in a healthy way. Of course, they're young, so they don't, you know, they don't remember everything. Um, but we talk to them about everything, politics, history. Good for you. Um, yeah, we try to keep them, keep them informed um, and try to keep them educated. Mm-hmm. to understand a lot of different things. My daughter, she's actually going to a uh, Spanish immersion school. So she's learning Spanish Excellent. eight hours a day, you know? That's and so, awesome. And she loves it. She loves mm-hmm. it. Anytime we go where, go somewhere and someone that speaks uh, Spanish, I'll always tell her to say something to them or, mm-hmm. you know, ask them something. So, well, so that's it's, the it's best also way. opening her to a diverse group. So true. And when you understand someone's language, you understand their culture better. So if you're already right there in just that effort alone, just creating the ability in her to be much more compassionate to a whole grouping of people. I think that is super fantastic. I wish all of us were required to be fluent in another language. Yeah, me too. But what good me would too. that I mean? We'd be a that whole different awesome. society. Uh-huh. <laughs> For sure. Awesome. Would you like to share with the audience about your book and your experience? Um, you know, bringing that to this point to, to reality. Sure. So uh, two years ago, um, me and my father, we really started began digging into the case and we started finding evidence. And uh, I started doing some small posts. It was the first time I had wrote down on paper me taking responsibility for what happened to me mm. on the bus that day, um, which was difficult for me to kind of get out and, and to look at the situation and know well, what did I do wrong? How how could I have made that situation better? Um, and not walked away with a scar on my head. So for the book, Fatherless Son, I, I start the book off um, in a prologue where I talk about um, a, a, an older individual that, that has a, uh, uh, that sort of works as a, a foreign diplomat in another country, working with uh, Israel and Palestine, solving world problems. And I say that this is the life that I was supposed to live, full of travel, history, mm-hmm. um, food, and, and all those good things, but instead mm-hmm. on in fe- on February 21st, 1987, um, because my father was in the wrong place at the wrong time and had the wrong skin color, he was picked up, and therefore my life was was tragically turned mm-hmm. at that particular in, in that particular way. And I talk about all the all the all the um, all the life events that a that a young African American person goes through living in the inner city um, without a father, and I uh, eventually come to a point. Um, I'll give you a quick story in, in, in uh, chapter 25, which is called God's Promise. When I become, when I eventually became a police officer, mm-hmm. I had, uh, I would see these white officers and they would always joke around these dead bodies that we would have. And I just thought it was so insensitive that uh, officers could joke around dead bodies with families around. You know, maybe they should be more sensitive. Um, but then when I started having dead bodies, I found myself starting to be a little more insensitive also hmm. with joking around, around these bodies. And I, I found out that it was sort of a, a mask that I was putting on because I was so sad about this body here. I had oh. to do something to tell some kind of joke in order not to cry in front of this family uh-huh. what was going on. And my, my that same year, my my son was born, Was uh, my wife was pregnant with my son. And I'd always talked to God about having a junior. And uh, he actually got stuck 
coming out of my wife and he was stuck oh, for yeah. six minutes um, with his head outside. And at that point, um, you know, I, I just, I became so upset with God that he wasn't mm. keeping his promise with me and, and, and allow me to have a son. Mm-hmm. Eventually my son got out and they started CPR on him and he wasn't breathing. Um, his pulse was very faint. And uh, he had this, when I was on the streets of Philadelphia, some of the drug addicts would have this gray haze on their face when they would be passing away, when that, when the heroin was just, they had too much heroin in their face and uh-huh. their body that the, the um, Narcan couldn't bring them back. And I began to know like, oh man, this guy's, you know, me and my partner, we would see, as soon as we pull up to the scene, we would say, yeah, he's, he's too far gone. Mm-hmm. And when I'm looking at my son, he's beginning to get this gray phase, this gray haze uh. to his face. And I'm saying, man, my son is, uh, he's slipping away. Mm-hmm. You know, this might be it right here um, mm-hmm. for, for the promise that I was made. And I can remember thinking about those individuals that I would be joking around. And I would say, and I, and I, and I thought in my head, I wish somebody would joke right now as my son is going through this. Um, so they continued CPR and he eventually jolted and they brought him back and uh, he doesn't have a problem with him now. But that took me back to the streets of Philadelphia with a new mindset after going through that situation. Now I need to be more, I need to keep that, um, that sensibility. I need to keep that sensitivity in me when I'm around these dead bodies and, and these families, mm-hmm. because even though I'm hurting, you know, they're hurting also. So I need to be the professional uh, mm-hmm. right now. So the book then travels into my father's case where we um, found out that there was DNA evidence taken from both scenes, the scene of the rape and the scene of the uh, uh, kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And they were all, it was all sent to the FBI. Once it was sent to the FBI, I had to figure out a way to get it from the FBI, which I eventually talked to a professor who told me, you know, some paperwork that I could file in order to get mm-hmm. that information. And mm-hmm. I eventually got that information back to say that he wasn't, he wasn't at the crime scene, mm. uh, that it, that they alleged that he was at. And um, yeah, I go from there. And, and, and it's just me trying to continually spread the word and trying to get this information into the right hands for mm-hmm. individuals to be able to exonerate him. Because not only do I want to, I want to see him exonerated, but I also don't, I want to know that that's not on my name and that's not in that some, someone that will commit these kind of events doesn't run through my DNA. Yes, for sure. So, yeah. I can totally say that. And where can we um, find your book? Can we purchase it? That book is at authorrashad.com. That's A-U-T-H-O-R-R-A-S-H-O-D.com. You can also purchase it on Amazon at Fatherless Son um, by Rashad Coleman. Um, and uh, you can also shoot me an email if you would like. Uh, some Excellent. people like to do it with the cash app. You can shoot me an email at authorrashad at gmail.com. Excellent. And if you would like to know more about the case, uh, we actually have, or I actually have a uh, YouTube page called Road to Exoneration, where I walk um, individuals through the state's uh, evidence and my father's evidence um, in a seven-part series to just explain the, the whole uh, story of everything that happened to him on that, um, that, that, that unfortunate morning of February 21st, 1987. Well, I can't wait to get your book as soon as we're done here. I'm so thankful that you have taken the time to write it and share it with people because mm-hmm. I think everybody's stories are interesting. Everybody is going through something. And mm-hmm. like you said, you didn't know the girl who attacked you with a box cutter. You didn't know what she was going through. And that explained why she reacted the way she did. Mm-hmm. If we could just be that way with everybody, if we could just give everybody that extra couple minutes of grace before we react, Mm-hmm. Wow. How would that that's, change? Yeah, that's so true. You know, I listen to, I often listen to, I don't know if you listen to rap music or not, um, but I listen to a guy, his name is uh, Swiss Beats, and he's a, um, he does a lot of production for a lot of uh-huh. rappers. And uh, he was on a podcast and they were talking to him 
about some of the things that he's learned um, throughout the years. And he said, you know, how many people will we still have alive right now if they took a second to talk to somebody? Just like, yo, give me, give me five seconds. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to step on your shoes. You know, mm-hmm. my, my apology. Mm-hmm. You know, give, give me a second. I know that she told you that I said this. This is what I meant. All right, now we can deal with it whatever way we want to deal with it. But yeah. just give me five seconds to just explain myself. And I think this book is, is unique because uh, though I go through a lot of tragic events, and, and I, like I said earlier, I had a friend, friend that passed away, my, my stepfather, the same year in the seventh grade, he was stabbed and nearly died. Um, mm. all those tragic things happened. I had so many other people that poured so much positivity in my life that I wanted to highlight mm-hmm. um, throughout the book that just told constantly told me the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just glad I listened. Yes. Yeah, yes. Glad I, glad I took heed to it. Because you're bringing such life and joy and change into so many lives. You get to touch so many lives. How lucky are mm-hmm. you? Yes, I bet you yes. feel that the weight of that every day. Oh, and it's amazing. Because people, yeah. when you you know, when a police officer comes on the scene or just stops his vehicle, everybody looks to see what, what this person mm-hmm. is going to do. So mm-hmm. it'd be nothing better than for me not to have anything to do on the street and stop on the street corner with all these drug dealers and get out mm-hmm. and talk about the game last night because mm-hmm. it's never happened to them. They mm-hmm. used the, the the cop stopping, just similar to I was when I used to stand on the street corner doing nothing, mm-hmm. put everybody on a wall and search them. What happens when an officer gets out the vehicle and says, "Hey, I was watching the same game you were watching last night. Yeah. Or I just bought the same." Um, rapper CD that you bought earlier. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. So, I like it's, that. Uh, I'm definitely trying to use it as a positive influence um, uh-huh. in the inner cities. Uh huh. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for you. I just have three more questions, and those are your closing sure. questions. What is your best tip to make the world a better place? I would think uh, I always do. I'll do uh, uh, this, these promotions for my book. And at the end of the promotion, I always say, take care of yourself and take care of the person next to you. Mm. And if we all took care, because that person could be anybody. That person could be the person at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It could be the person you got into an argument with out on the street. It could be your wife laying next to you every night. If you just take care of that person, if we all take care of the person next to us, mm-hmm. however that may be, you know, it doesn't always need to be financial. It could be just an emotional, hey, how's your day going? What'd you do this weekend? Anything I can help you with? Mm. Um, that person whose car broke down, you know, on the road and has a flat tire. If I could just help the person next to me, I think the world would be a better place. You're right. Yeah. 100%. Cause, cause you don't know be, before, you know, a person's religion or political affiliation or anything about how that person thinks that person is just a person that you can yes. go to and you can help. Yes. So, so that would true. be my advice. What are you the most thankful for right now? Most thankful for uh, the values that I've been taught. The mm. values that I've been taught. This is, it's funny nice. you ask that question because I went to my wife's house um, for Thanksgiving this year, mm-hmm. and we 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 uh, went around the table and I asked everyone. Well, we were outside actually because of the COVID, mm-hmm. but I went around and I asked everyone. I want you to give me something that you're thankful for, but you can't say God, family, or health. It has to be something else. Yeah. Um, and some people thank God. You know, we're thankful that they have they're debt free. But my biggest thing is just the values that I was taught. Um, by some coaches and by some mentors and by some teachers of just being a good person, being the best person that mm-hmm. I can be. Those values are, are, are vital in my life. And I think they're you know, vital in your life also that you feel the need to bring people such as myself to, to your platform to be able to share my yeah. story. Well, and the interesting thing about those values that you're given young, in the young years, you don't know to be thankful for them at that time. That's exactly. something that only time and experience and 
hardship brings to light, brings to the forefront. And then now, you know, you're like, yeah, that's what did it. Those are the good thank, things. Yeah. Thank God somebody told me that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And lastly, what is your favorite quote? Aside from, aside from my mother's quote, I think the best quote that I've ever had was from, a, from a, an amazing basketball coach that I coached with. Um, one day we had a practice and he, he went on a, a whiteboard and he wrote down all these different rules that we have. And it was a whole, you know, whole whiteboard of rules. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, he said, all this can be summed up with do right. Do Ooh. right. Just do right. If you have to question yourself about is this the right thing to do, just don't do it. Nice. Don't that it. is boils it down to exactly what it's about. That I right. love it. I love yeah. it. It sounds yeah. like something a basketball coach would come up with. <laughs> What's your favorite quote? What's your favorite quote if I can ask? It's always shocking when somebody turns it around on me because <laughs> I'm never <laughs> ready. Um, I have a lot of them. Let me look at one of my most recent. I keep them on my phone. Um, yeah. And I have so many that um, I've had to break them up by like person. My <laughs> person. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, what, while, you're, while you're thinking about it, I'll tell you also one thing that I do struggle with. I mean, I know I'm in a place now where, where I'm, uh, you know, I'm this author and I'm doing well for myself. Nice house, nice mm -hmm. children, um, mm -hmm. beautiful wife. But one thing I do struggle with is the fact that I moved out of the city. And I really? moved to a safer place. Yeah, I struggle with that fact because I knew when I was coming up, as I said earlier, I would only see drug dealers and guys doing the bad, the bad things in the mm -hmm. neighborhood. So I know that people like myself are needed mm -hmm. inside of the inner city. Mm -hmm. But then I struggle with I don't want, but I don't want my son to see the things that I've seen. Yes. I don't want my son to see that person shot or yes. those drug dealers, or that person doing drugs on the corner. So it's always, you know, it's still that struggle of exactly. Um, you know, are you doing enough? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, so what do you got for us? Okay. There's a Brian Stevenson quote that mm -hmm. just, I, every time I hear it, it just makes me want to be more loving. He says, um, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Mm. And that just hits me. Like, I want people to give me the benefit of the doubt why don't I give that back in return? Like I need to be reminded, yeah. just do this. So I just, true. I love his heart. I love how he, how he speaks to the truth in a gentle yet direct mm -hmm. way. So yeah, that's. He's that's also the, from Delaware. He's also from Delaware also. Where I'm from. That's right. He yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. He's incredible. Awesome. I think I have three of his written down here. Um, What's yeah. another one? An another one of his is, um, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. Mm. Isn't that the truth? That is. It reminds mm. me of a quote, the same people you see going up, same people you're going to see going down. Yes. So always be nice to the people when you're going, when you're going up. <laughs> yes. My husband says that. Like, There's always going to be somebody better and higher than you and always going to be somebody worse off than lower than you. And sure. it's important that we treat everybody the same because mm -hmm. we're one of those people to somebody else, right? Awesome. Yes, ma'am. Ah. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you've been such an inspiration to me today, Arthur Rashad. Thank you so much. I just, I love getting to know you and your story and I can't wait to dive in and read more and watch your YouTube channel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I look forward to you uh, checking it out and 
and give me your feedback. Oh, I will. I certainly will. Well, thank you for your time today. It's lovely thank to you meet again. you. Awesome. Rashad has such a tender heart for helping people. He also brings a unique perspective, that of an African-American police officer. He sees and can speak to both sides of the equation with knowledge, compassion, and understanding. He is purposeful about building positive relationships with those living in tougher neighborhoods. He seeks out kids that used to be just like him as a youth and tries to give them attention, kindness, and wisdom because he knows what they lack and what they yearn for since he was one of those kids. One thing his mom taught him was to never be a victim of his environment, nor to be a victim of who you are. This advice was taken to heart and lived out, even though terrible things happened to their family. I'm in awe of how they stayed focused and continued being the best people they could be in society. All of us need to take Rashad's mom's wisdom to heart. Understand the history, but don't use it as a victim card. Be cautious in this society, but don't let that hinder you from being happy. I had quite the aha moment when Rashad said, white people will never understand what it feels like. That trauma is passed down through generations. I desperately want to understand. I want to empathize. I want to show I care, but he's right. I'll never feel it. The best I can do is imagine the pain. Trauma passed down through generations takes so much time to heal. And if circumstances keep that trauma raw and at the surface, it takes even longer. I think as white people, we would do good to remember this and extend more grace, more patience, and more mercy since we can't pretend to understand or even know the depth of this feeling. Lastly, I want to encourage you to read Rashad's story in his own words from his book, Fatherless Son. I'm actually going to make it easier for one of you wonderful listeners by giving you a chance to get his book for free. All you need to do is send an email to Corey at Gramercy.us and tell me your favorite quote from Officer Coleman's episode. I will draw a winner at random on March 28, 2021 and notify the lucky reader via email. Author Rashad also has a seven-part series on YouTube that describes in detail everything he went through to exonerate his father. You can find all of Rashad's social media and website links in the show notes. I'd like to end with Officer Coleman's tip for making the world a better place. Take care of the person next to you. It really is that simple. And he is a shining example of what that looks like. He answers Martin Luther King Jr.'s question of, Life's most persistent and urgent question is, What are you doing for others? May we all find the answer to that question for our own lives, just as Rashad has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.